When you consider the word glory, you probably think of it in relation to God, and rightly so. But glory is also promised to believers. Today on Turning Point, Dr. David Jeremiah returns to his study of what he calls the five golden links in the chain of salvation, which culminates in glory for all eternity. From his series in Romans 8, here's David to introduce the conclusion of Salvation's Golden Chain. You know, I got some information this week from people who said they always knew this chapter was in the book of Romans because they've read it and they've read through it, but never realized how central it is to everything that we are in Christ and how wonderful it is to absorb the truth of Romans chapter 8. We have uh, collected all this information and put it together in this series, and we have a beautiful study guide that gives you all of the details. This is a tremendous way to memorialize what you've been listening to. And the study guide uh, gives you the basic outline and and a condensed version of what I talk about. Then there's places for you to add uh, other verses and make other comments and applications to your own life. It's a beautiful way to study the Scripture, and it's a wonderful thing to do if you have a small group. Here's eight lessons for a small group study. Uh, There's time for you to get this in even before the holidays uh, take over. So why don't you just get these study guides for your group? You get the CDs. Listen to the lesson before you go to the study group, and then have a robust discussion about God's blessings, the greatest chapter of the Bible, Romans 8. Well, we're getting ready to finish up this uh, lesson on the golden chain, so turn to Romans 8, 29 and 30. This is part two, Salvation's Golden Chain. The preacher doesn't cause people to come to Christ. The preacher announces the gospel, invites people to come to Christ, but it is God working in them that is the one who brings them to salvation. And that's the joy that I have because I show up here every Sunday. I don't know who's out here that God's working in. He might be working in you today. You showed up and wonder, what am I doing here? Well, God's working in you. You showed up and I'm just making the announcements. Come to Jesus and he'll change your life. There's no better illustration of that than the story of Lazarus. And I want you to listen carefully to this. Lazarus, who had died four days earlier, he's in his grave. Lazarus is a picture of every human being in his or her natural state, spiritually dead. We were born into this world spiritually dead. Physically alive, but spiritually dead. That's why we need to be saved. We're spiritually dead. Now, let me tell you something about dead people. Dead people don't do nothing. You got it? Just remember that. So here's Lazarus. He's dead. He's sealed in this grave with a gravestone, lying in the tomb. So I come to Lazarus' grave, and I say, Lazarus, hey, man, come on out. We want you back. We miss you. If you just get up out of that tomb and come out here, we are anxious to have you back, and we won't put anything in your way. Lazarus, just come on back, man. Come on back. What? You're not coming? He doesn't want to be with us? No, no, the problem is that Lazarus does not have the ability to come back. The call is given, but he can't come. Why? He's dead. Oh, but let Jesus take his place before the tomb. Let Jesus call out, Lazarus, come forth. And the case is quite different. The words are the same, but now the call is no more an invitation. It's an effectual calling For the same God who originally called the creation out of nothing is now calling life out of death, and his call is heard. 
Lazarus, though he has been dead four days, hears Jesus and obeys his master's voice. And that is how God calls us out of our sin. We're dead. We can't pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and get to heaven, not by works of righteousness that we have done. We need God to do that. Dead people don't do nothing. Dead spiritual people have no ability. If God doesn't initiate the process, we have no chance. So that means one day you were listening to the gospel and God called you and you became a Christian. The calling from the pulpit was only an announcement. God had been working in your life. If God hadn't called you, you couldn't be a Christian because you know why? Before you're a Christian, you're dead as a doornail and dead things don't do nothing. And I am not trying to overstate this, but your calling is the moment when that which was decreed about you in eternity becomes actual in time. He loved you before the world was formed. And one day he called you, and what he loved you for, what he loves you as, he made that real in your life. You with me? The calling part of it's good. Good (laughs) All right, now let's go to number four. Number four is justification. And I want to disabuse a definition of this that I've heard all my life that's just not true. Hear me carefully. Justification doesn't mean just as if you never sinned. Doesn't mean that. That's a really bad definition of justification. First of all, you have sinned. (laughs) All of you. Me too. Romans 8.30 says, Whom he called, those he also justified. If you want to read about justification, you can go back and read it. It's one of the great doctrines of the faith. But let me tell you what it is not. Justification is not amnesty. God coming and saying, okay, that's it. It's over, forgiven, all gone. Justification is strictly something different than that. Justification is an act of justice. When God justifies sinners, he's not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners after all. He is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law, because he himself, in his son, has borne the penalty of their law-breaking. Here's a story to help you. Suppose a woman were to build up a debt at a branch store of a large company, and the debt was way above her means to pay it. I mean, it was huge, and there was no possibility she could ever pay it. If after hearing her case, the store were to cancel her debt, that would be forgiveness. Under these circumstances, the woman would no longer be liable for her account, but she would always have a feeling of personal discomfort about the whole transaction. If, on the other hand, the legal department of the company decided to press for payment, that would be justice. Suppose that while she was awaiting trial for her undischarged account, the woman This is a story too good to be true. The woman were to marry the wealthy son of the store owner who personally assumed the responsibility for her account and paid it in full. It doesn't get any better than that. If that were to happen, there would be no legal claim against her anymore. And in the unlikely event of her case ever getting to court, She could plead not guilty to all charges on the grounds that her debts had been fully paid by her husband. 
the court would say that she was justified in pleading not guilty and her case would be dismissed. If a person is to be forgiven, he must plead guilty and sue for mercy. If a person is to be justified, he must plead not guilty and show the opposition has no case against him at all. Of course, forgiveness and justification both enter into salvation. But the Lord Jesus has fully discharged all of our obligations so that there is no legal ground for charges to be ever pressed against us anymore. And moreover, he has given us a perfect standing before God so that we are fully acceptable in the sight of the Almighty. Justification is way more than just as if we'd never sinned. Justification is the fact that we have sinned and that the penalty for our sin has been paid in full and in the place of our sin has been given to us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's why I love 2 Corinthians 5.21. Here's what it says. For he made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Justification is God trading our sin for his righteousness, for taking our sin on the cross and leveling his wrath against his own son to pay the penalty for our sin. And in the process saying, you are not just forgiven, you are justified. You are not just absent the wrong, you are present the right. And you have a standing before God. And then the last one is glorification. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. He foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified us, and he says one day we're going to be glorified. Now the word glory is in the Bible a lot of times, and almost all the times you read the word glory in the Bible, it's about the glory of God. But here Paul says, whom he justified, he glorified. And he's talking about us. Paul said that one day we're going to be glorified. We're going to be like Jesus. We're going to bring glory to heaven. Now listen carefully because this is really important. Look at your Bibles, and if you can be grammatical for just a moment, ask yourself, what tense is this verse in? Whom he justified, he also glorified. When is our glorification? It's in the future. What is the tense? It's past. In the eyes of God, we are already glorified. He sees us in the finished edition Them he also glorified. God sees us as we are in position before the Father. And one day we will realize that in reality. One day we will be glorified. But it's so certain that it's going to happen. God wrote it in past tense. It has happened. As certainly, and it will happen. Now listen to me. We're on this journey from where we are, not glorified, to where we're going to be glorified. God says it's going to happen. And he expects us to walk along this way and be made holy like Jesus Christ. This should be our goal. Lord, help me to be in practice what I already am in perfection. Help me every day to live in light of the fact that you've already declared me glorified. I want to live my life that way. Do you know what God expects us to do? He expects us to act like we know where we're going and who we're going to become. Live our lives every day on this train to heaven living for the Lord Jesus Christ, trying to bring glory to his name. And one day, if we do that, the Bible says we're already glorified. We're going to stand before God. And you know how we can be that way? Because he took all of our sin and put it on his son. 
He took your adultery and your stealing and your lying and your, all of the sins. He put all those on Jesus and forgave you completely. And then he took all of the righteousness of Jesus and he put that on you. And so now you stand before God perfect in God's eyes. And the Bible says glorified, ultimately glorified. So these five links to salvation tell us, listen carefully, that our salvation is such an important thing that it began before the world began and it doesn't end until we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ glorified in his presence. Our salvation is an eternal issue. Salvation is so wonderful. And we take it for granted, don't we? Don't we? Yeah. Let's don't do that. You may not understand everything about election, and maybe this verse confuses you, but pick out one of those points and thank God for it today because that's what he's done for you. I want to answer a couple of questions that people have about this whole discussion. I want to do this the best I can. Sometimes people argue this way. Well, if salvation is all of God and it's not of man, then man has no responsibility to do anything about his salvation. He should just sit back and be passive and let God be God. But here's what we must understand. The sovereignty of God does not in any way diminish the responsibility of man. From man's perspective, we are totally responsible before God. From God's perspective, we are chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You say, well, I don't get that. And you know what? It's hard. But let me tell you something my father told me many years ago when I first was going to preach a sermon on this. He gave me this story. He said, David, here's what you need to remember. Someday when you go to heaven, let's just assume you get to heaven's gates and you get ready to walk in the gates and up over the, over the gate is this statement. Whosoever will may come. That's true, isn't it? He said, then you walk in the gate and you turn, you look back up and on the inside of the gate are written these words, chosen in him before the foundation of the world. You see, we don't know except what God tells us. All I need to know is that God called me, I responded, and I said yes. I don't need to know all the other stuff, but when I get to heaven one day, I'm going to look over my shoulder and I'm going to find out this is what God, he chose me before the foundation of the world. Then there's another response to this doctrine that's kind of similar, but this is where the real issue is today in our denomination in some churches. That is, we might call this the apathy argument, and it has to do with evangelism. Some who hear a message like the one you have heard today will reason like this. Well, if God is sovereign in salvation, then we have no responsibility to evangelize the lost because if they're going to get saved, they're going to get saved no matter what we do. After all, the elect are going to be saved whether we witness or not. No, that's not true because the same God who tells us about the sovereign purpose of salvation is the God who commands us to go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The God who is sovereign in the goal of salvation is also sovereign in the means to that goal. So Lorraine Bettner says it this way. He said, the decree of election is a secret decree. And since no revelation has been given to the preacher as to which ones among his hearers are elect and which ones are not, it is not possible for him to present the gospel to the elect only. 
It is his duty to look with hope on all those to whom he is preaching and to pray for them that they may be each one responsive. In order to offer the message to the elect, he must offer it to all, and the Scripture commands him to do that very thing, to preach the gospel to all. While some say this doctrine discourages evangelism, the Bible does not support that. In fact, just think about it. Every time I preach, there are candidates for salvation. Every time I preach, there's somebody out there that perhaps God has already been working in their life, and I might get to be the one who shakes their hand when they come to Jesus. Is it because of David Jeremiah? No. Is it because of them? No. It's because of God working in their life. If I don't tell them, they won't hear. So here's a good way to look at this. If you try to resolve the sovereignty of God and the responsibility of man, you will drive yourself crazy. People far more brilliant than all of us together have tried to do that, and they haven't gotten anywhere. Here's what I know. I'm going to let God worry about his sovereignty, and I'm going to worry about my responsibility. And I'm going to look at it this way, and maybe you can join me in this. Let's say we're all standing in the middle of a train track, and this rail is the sovereignty of God, and this rail is the free will of man. And we're looking all the way down. You see the track? It doesn't come together until infinity. It stays apart, but ultimately, as you look at it, at least from your perspective, it comes together. You know when you will understand how the free will of man and the sovereignty of God work when you get to heaven. Don't expect me to tell you. I can't tell you. All I can tell you is these are two doctrines the Bible teaches. There's a built-in tension between them. But think of them as these two rails that ultimately get resolved in the future. And then spend your life being responsible to God. Let him take care of his sovereignty. You take care of your responsibility. In other words, don't get lost in the argument. Here's a couple of verses for you that are quite interesting in the New Testament. Acts 18, 9, and 10. Paul was ministering in Corinth, and the Lord spoke to him in a night vision, and he said, Paul, do not be afraid, but speak, and do not keep silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to hurt you, for I have many people in this city. In other words, God had appointed a number of people in Corinth for salvation who had not yet heard the gospel, and the effect of Paul's preaching would bring them to faith. Whenever we preach the gospel, we should be encouraged to know that while we are preaching the message, God has already been at work in the lives of some who are listening. Now, here's a verse that puts it all together. You may have read this verse, but you never read it this way. Here it is. Acts 13, 48. Listen to this. Now, when the Gentiles heard this, They were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Isn't that interesting? Who believed? Those who had been appointed to eternal life. You say, well, I don't understand that. You don't need to understand it. Just accept it. This is it. This is what the Bible says. God is involved in our salvation way beyond anything we can imagine. If you're a Christian today, you don't want to go around singing the song that I heard somebody sing when I was growing up. I found what I wanted when I found the Lord. You didn't find the Lord. You weren't even looking for him. He found you. Remember our story? You were running away and he caught you. The hound of heaven came and got you. That's why you're a Christian. You didn't find him. 
As I look back over what we have been studying today, I can't help but think of this. Many people I know just spend all their time arguing about the doctrine, and they have little time left to appreciate it. You know, we should strive to understand everything we can about the working of God in the world, and then stop with being discouraged because we can't understand it all because He is God. His ways are higher than our ways, His thoughts than our thoughts. And if that were not true, He could not be God, and because that is true, I worship Him. I seek to know Him the best I can, but I don't worry about the things I can't understand because my finite mind is not capable of comprehending the infinite mind of Almighty God. Some of our best-loved hymns were written by an 18th century English poet by the name of William Cooper. His name is pronounced Cooper, but it's spelled C-O-W-P-E-R. Sounds like Cowper, but he pronounces his name Cooper. William Cooper had a miserable childhood. His mother died when he was only six years old. He was bundled off to a boarding school where, being slight of build and of a sensitive nature, he was mercilessly badgered and bullied and beaten by the older boys. Cooper struggled through this time and through his early years as a law student, but terrors overwhelmed him, and on more than one occasion his mind seemed to fail. Twice he tried to commit suicide. At last, in the year 1756, this 25-year-old Cooper was committed to a private asylum under the care of a man whose name was Dr. Cotton. And Dr. Cotton was a devout Christian who treated the distraught poet in a way that brought him out of his depression and introduced him to salvation through the work of Christ. Cooper had been very troubled by his sin, often crying out, My sin, my sin, oh, for some fountain to open for my cleansing. But he had not known of any such fountain. Now, under the care of this Christian doctor, he discovered the only fountain that has ever washed away one's sins. It was during one of his deepest depressions that he threw himself into a chair. He saw a Bible. He opened the Bible to the third chapter of Romans and read these words, Yet God in His grace freely makes us right in His sight. He did this through Jesus Christ when He freed us from the penalty of our sins. He said, when I read that, I received the strength to believe. I saw the sufficiency of the atonement and the fullness and completeness of his justification. In a moment, I believed and I received the gospel. Later, after his conversion, looking back on this moment, he wrote the words to this loved hymn. For those of us who grew up in the church, this is not a new hymn. We've been singing this all our lives. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Those are the words of William Cooper. Amen. I love that hymn, don't you? And we don't sing it enough, but uh, it is an amazing, amazing hymn. And when you know the story behind it, it's even more exciting. Thank God for that hymn and for the truth that uh, it captures. Well, tomorrow we're going to talk about five unshakable promises. At the end of the golden chain section in verses 29 and 30, 
There are five verses that outline five things that are true for all of us. These are great promises. If you're looking for some encouragement and some motivation to keep going in your Christian life, you don't want to miss tomorrow. In between now and then, if you haven't already done so, please make sure you get your copy of the Romans Written Word Journal. I have it here in my hand. It's a beautifully bound hardback journal. And it's put together in such a way as to organize you writing your own written edition of the Book of Romans in longhand. When you get done, you will have the Book of Romans written out just like Paul did when he wrote this book. You will have your own copy. And you say, what's the benefit of that? Well, I can't tell you everything that will happen in your life. I just know when you write something, it goes to a different place in your mind, goes to a different place in your heart. And it's one of the ways that you can incorporate the Word of God into your own life. I recommend it. I hope you'll give us a chance to do it. Send your gift. Ask for your copy. It'll be on its way. And don't forget to join us tomorrow for the five unshakable promises of Romans 8. See you then. The message you just heard originated from Shadow Mountain Community Church and senior pastor, Dr. David Jeremiah. If Turning Point is making a difference in your life, let us know. Write to Turning Point for God of Canada, P.O. Box 18098, Delta, B.C., V4L2M4. Visit our website at davidjeremiah.ca slash radio or call 800-946-4300. Ask for your copy of Romans, the written word journal designed by David to help you know God's Word more deeply. It's yours for a gift of any amount. You can also download the free Turning Point mobile app for your favorite smart devices, or search in your app store for the keywords Turning Point Ministries and instantly access our content. Visit davidjeremiah.ca slash radio for details. This is David Michael Jeremiah. Join us tomorrow as we continue the series Romans 8, here on Turning Point with Dr. David Jeremiah. Lots of advice telling you how to set and reach your goals. But before you dive in, it's a good idea to know God's plan for your life. Find joy in pursuing the next steps God has for you in Dr. David Jeremiah's new book, Forward, Discovering God's Presence and Purpose in Your Tomorrow. God does have a perfect plan for you, and it's time to embrace your life's purpose. It's time to move forward. Learn more at davidjeremiah.ca slash forward. Are you looking for an effective tool for studying the scriptures? Dr. David Jeremiah has created an incredible new resource to help you do just that. The Bible tells us again and again to write down God's Word. And it's a practice that has personally transformed my study of scripture. That is why I have created the first, the Written Word Journal, so that you can join me in this powerful practice. I promise you, as you follow God's command to copy Scripture by hand, your study of God's Word will be stronger than ever. Here's more. This journal helps you create your own copy of Paul's letter to the Romans. On one side, you'll write selections from Romans word for word. On the other side, you'll record your thoughts, reflections, and prayers. When you donate any amount to support Turning Point, the written word journal is yours. If you give $60 or more, you'll receive the Romans 8 set, including this teaching series on CD or DVD and study guide. Order the book or the complete set at davidjeremiah.ca. In the pagan city of Corinth, new Christians struggled to learn how to follow Christ. 
For example, was it acceptable to buy meat in the marketplace that had been offered as a sacrifice to idols? Was that a sin? The Apostle Paul's answer was that the origin of the food didn't matter. But he gave them a guideline to use in that situation and in every area of life. Therefore, Paul wrote, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. That is a guide for life for the Christian. Is God being glorified in what I choose to do? This is David Jeremiah encouraging you to get on the road to new life. Discover God's glory on Route 66. Route 66, driving the word home. Log on to Route66life.com and get your roadmap for life. Route 66, start your journey home today.